it is the Chinese Communist Party seeking to extend its authoritarian power to Hong Kong, or Hong Kong Democrats insisting on real elections for the special administrative region, this Sinatra song kept coming to my mind this week. In these deeply troubled times for both China and Hong Kong, it is worthwhile to take a look at how events are being seen in what continues to be the only current Chinese democracy in Taiwan. For a start last weekend, the two democratic leaderships in Taiwan both felt the need to speak up and speak out. In one of several comments at a recent Kuomintang meeting, President Ma Ying-jeou did not echo the self-congratulation emanating from Beijing when he suggested that the mainland authorities should live up to its long-term commitment to the residents of Hong Kong. Only by doing so can the authorities dissipate Hong Kong's social discontent and secure the long-term and sustainable support from the residents of Hong Kong. President Ma, himself born in Hong Kong, has earned a reputation for being too conciliatory towards China. Now, under pressure to be more assertive vis-à-vis Beijing, he also asserted that democracy and the rule of law are core values long sought after by the people of Taiwan. We will continue to keep an eye on the situation in Hong Kong and express our support for the residents of Hong Kong in the pursuit of democracy and the rule of law. President Ma did not, of course, go so far as to actually criticise Chinese behaviour vis-à-vis Hong Kong, but he certainly implied it. Quote, I think that the Hong Kong government and the mainland authorities should answer the appeals of the majority of residents of Hong Kong through rational dialogue and peaceful means. In a press release issued last Friday in advance of the National People's Congress ruling on the 2017 Hong Kong chief executive election, Democratic Progressive Party official spokesman Huang Diying asked Beijing not to further harass Hong Kong's democracy and rule of law and to instead address Hong Kong people's request for deeper democratization and guarantee their right to pursue progress. The Hong Kong people had loudly called for democratic reforms, Huang said, but the response from Beijing and the Hong Kong authorities, quote, shuts out the people's call for true general suffrage and casts a shadow over the process of democratization, unquote. The DPP is normally more critical of China than the Guomindang, but the party's English-language website, which of course I depend on, clearly lags behind the times in translating all that its leaders have said on current topics. An interesting sidebar reported in the Taiwan press was that Hong Kong's protest message was carried last Sunday, August the 31st, to a point outside China's embassy in Washington, D.C., by leading members of the Sunflower Movement, the student group that had occupied the Taiwan parliament last April to protest and ultimately to delay a trade with China bill. The Sunflower Movement now appears to be a federation of various student activist organisations, members of 
Taiwan March, Black Island National Youth Front and the Overseas Taiwan Youth Alliance, together with two of the original Sunflower leaders, were all outside the Chinese embassy. They held up placards saying, Taiwan Youth Support Democracy for Hong Kong. And then a statement was read out denouncing the Chinese National People's Congress decision to restrict candidate nominations and to reject universal voting proposals, saying, It is a fake democracy and a fake election. We strongly condemn China's oppression against the yearning for democracy by Hong Kong residents. We also protest against Taiwan's Mainland Affairs Council for its feeble reply with just an expression of regret. We request China to respect the aspiration for reform and democracy in Hong Kong. The Sunflower Statement said... But the whole China situation was superbly summarised by a long editorial in the Taipei Times entitled Hong Kong Experience, A Warning to Taiwan. Forgive me if I quote it almost in full. The editorial began on a gloomy note. Quote, When Hong Kong and Macau were returned to China from the UK and Portugal respectively, China promised to implement a one-country, two-system policy and late Chinese leader Deng Xiaoping famously promised Hong Kongers that its horse racing, dancing and stock markets would continue unchanged for 50 years. But less than 20 years after the handover, Hong Kong is a shadow of its former self, unquote. The editorial then described for Taiwan readers a recent election in Macau, quote, When the people of Macau elected a new chief executive last week, they had all of one person to choose from, Fernando Chui, who received 96% of the vote. While democracies often see candidates elected with just over 50% of the vote, this level of endorsement is just ridiculously high. The reason for this extreme high percentage of support was that only 396 electors were allowed to vote. Common residents were barred from participating. And for those who have the right to participate, it is difficult to vote against the official candidate. Such efficiency is a rare phenomenon in the democratic world." But the powers that be in Beijing liked the Macau election so much they wanted to use it as a model without realising they were creating a problem for themselves. Quote, It is difficult for Beijing to understand why it cannot use the same electoral system in Hong Kong as it uses in Macau. After all, both territories are tiny and both are former colonies. British rule over Hong Kong put a modern, civilised system in place offering freedom, the rule of law, an advanced education system and commerce. In the tug of war between a focus on internationalization and on internalization, the recognition of the value of internationalization among Hong Kongers far exceeds the attraction of sinicization, unquote. Not realising this, as they announced the new rules for the 2017 Hong Kong Chief Executive election, the National People's Congress upped the ante. Quote, 
the threshold for candidates was increased, making it impossible for anyone who has not gained the support of the Chinese government and the local elite to be nominated. Disappointed Hong Kongers are now talking about a birdcage chief executive and vow to expand the scope of the Occupy Central movement. As far as China is concerned, it is already a major concession to allow general elections to take place. But Hong Kongers do not appreciate this benevolent gift. They insist that general elections must follow international standards and they want to use such universal values to challenge Beijing's model, forcing Beijing to draw a line in the sand." Having explained the background, the Taipei Times editorial brings the argument right back home. Quote, Hong Kong and Macau offer harsh lessons for Taiwanese. The one country, two systems promise, is no guarantee of a bright future. Macau, with its lack of any kind of bargaining chip, cannot stop Beijing from doing as it pleases, and it does not even have the right to say no. Hong Kong, while it does have the means to say no, cannot get what it wants. Taiwan has full democracy, the rule of law, and economic development, and its standards for democracy and human rights outpace Hong Kong's and Macau's by far. Everyone is watching how China deals with Hong Kong, and Taiwan cannot ignore what is going on there. The more China suppresses democracy in Hong Kong, the further Taiwan will distance itself from Beijing. Unquote. It's so obviously true. The more China suppresses democracy in Hong Kong, the further Taiwan will distance itself from Beijing. This thought-provoking editorial left me wondering, having spent a great deal of time and energy improving relations with the current Taiwan government, why does China's communist government put that achievement and many others at risk? Could it be that after making up for all its earlier failures and having promoted China relatively quickly into the first rank of developed economies, that this undoubted success has gone to China's head, making it believe that intractable political problems can be swept aside with equal ease? This week, as the possibility of civil disobedience in Hong Kong has been widely discussed, the question has naturally arisen. What have been the ingredients of civil disobedience or people power campaigns in Asia? First and last, one essential ingredient is secrecy, secrecy, secrecy by demonstrators. As it happens, a classic example of this was the students' occupation of the Taiwan parliament earlier this year. The first that most people, and certainly the Taiwan authorities, heard about the plan was when the parliament had already been occupied by the students. But when another rival group of students announced in advance that they would occupy the second house of parliament, the authorities were prepared, the takeover was opposed, and the demonstration was defeated. Mahatma Gandhi was a great believer in secrecy too as he sought to promote nationwide civil disobedience against British rule in India, he knew he had to combine secrecy with publicity. 
Thus, in 1930, he gave advance notice of his famous salt march across India to protest the British imposition of a salt tax. But before the British authorities in Delhi could react, Gandhi himself had already set out on the march to be joined first by thousands, and then by hundreds of thousands, and then by millions of Indians en route, by which time the authorities were powerless to react. Gandhi was a great believer in cloaking civil disobedience in a religious aura. So was Philippine Cardinal Jaime Sin. In the wake of Ninoy Aquino's assassination in Manila in 1983, the word went out that Catholics should actively and secretly train for opposition to the Marcos regime. So when Defence Secretary Juan Ponsonrile and General Fidel Ramos suddenly took a stand of opposition to the regime in Kant Kwame in 1986, Cardinal Sin was quick to go on air and call for the trained cadres to come forth. In short order, they in turn marshalled a million Filipinos on the main highway, Epifanio de los Santos, adjacent to Camp Crame. Both Enrile and Ramos were secure, but Marcos was definitely not. His army could not defend him and his regime quickly collapsed. But another ingredient for civil disobedience is national or widespread consensus on what should or must be achieved. In 1987, when student demonstrations battled with the police at nearly all of South Korea's universities, the violence and the disruption were tolerated by the public because the South Korean middle class broadly agreed with the student aims that Chunderwon must go and that future presidents must be democratically elected. To secure that end, people put up with the demos and the disruption. Oh.